Hi everyone, I want to remind you that I'm running a promo right now. If you sign up for my Patreon for a monthly or per episode donation, I'll send you a History of U.S. Economics podcast mug. I'll be running the promo indefinitely, so even if you hear the episode a year or two after its release, I'll still send you one. Check it out at patreon.com forward slash U.S. Econ podcast. As always, you can also support this project by following the show on Twitter, at US Econ Podcast, or checking out the website, useconpodcast.com. Also, leaving a review or subscribing is always really helpful. All right, thank you. Enjoy the show. Before last episode's detour into Marxism, we left off in the 1850s, a time that set the stage for the coming Civil War. While issues like slavery, headlined as a major cause of division between the North and South, the economic environment played a close second fiddle in driving a wedge between Americans. Specifically, I'm referring to an event which polarized the North and South economically speaking. It was the Panic of 1857, and the recession that it launched. It seems like every 20 years or so throughout the 1800s, a game-changing financial crisis occurred. There was the Panic of 1819, and then the Panic of 1837, and now we're talking about the Panic of 1857. I think of them as consequences of the cyclical nature of business and credit cycles under the capitalist system. Karl Marx even pointed out how capitalism leads to cycles of inflationary booms, which were then followed by devastating deflationary busts. In fact, that was one of his big arguments for why there should be government control in the economy. It was to limit these cycles. The elusive Goldilocks economy, one of perfect harmony between growth and restraint, without too much of either, proved a difficult balance to find, as it still does today. Throughout most of the 19th century, it was pretty much a rule that about 5 or 10 years of growth were followed by a sudden financial collapse, where prices dropped and unemployment shot up, and the money supply contracted. And then there was a period of recession for about three to seven years, followed by sluggish economic growth until the economy began to heat back up again, completing the 20-year macroeconomic cycle. We've skipped over the lesser ones, but between 1790 and 1907, there were 21 financial panics of various magnitudes. Not all of those panics led to recessions, but all of them dragged asset prices down from their lofty heights and crushed people's fortunes. Regarding the major panics, each also had their own pet asset bubble. In 1819, it was land. In 1837, it was cotton and indirectly real estate and slaves. And in 1857, it was gold and railroad stocks. We left off our narrative during the frenzied westward expansion, while the gold rush gripped the U.S. economy. The national desire to develop westward led to speculation in several booming industries, specifically, as I mentioned, the railroad industry, whose rails were needed to connect all the new settlements popping up along the western frontier, and the gold industry, which went berserk after the discovery of gold at Sutter's Mill in 1848. Adding another dimension to the economy in the 19th century, the ruling administrations from Andrew Jackson in 1829 to James Buchanan in 1861 pursued a largely hands-off laissez-faire approach to the economy. As evidence of this, Jackson vetoed and then defunded the Second Bank of the United States, which was the country's central bank at the time, and later presidents Van Buren and James Polk both worked towards an independent treasury, meaning government funds couldn't intermix with private businesses. If we want to see a trial run of what pure capitalism looks like, an iteration of capitalism minimally influenced by government intervention or regulation, 
then the period of the 1830s to the 1860s is a pretty good case study. Free banking policies, which became the precedent for much of the country during this period, meant that banks could operate with minimal state oversight and virtually no federal oversight, printing money and making loans however those banks desired. As we'll see, lax financial regulations invited banks to begin popping up all across the country during this era. While some of those banks acted responsibly, many printed and loaned out money recklessly, hoping only to launder a nice revenue stream from the interest income on the loans that they made. If you're thinking that reckless lending and uncontrolled inflation sounds like the makings of a dangerous asset bubble, well, you would be correct. Though this time, the asset bubble didn't emerge in cotton or slaves, it manifested heavily in the exploding railroad industry. As we'll see, railroad stocks were to investors of the 1850s, as tech stocks were to the investors of the 1990s. And exacerbating that inflation-fueled speculative bubble, hundreds of young, reckless, unregulated banks were fresh on the scene and looking to make a buck. Think for a minute from a banker's perspective. If making money is your first priority, then printing money and loaning it out is a pretty easy way to turn a laundered profit. You create the money, then lend it out and collect the interest. It's pretty simple. It's what a lot of the banks were doing. The only leash on this process was your bank's reserve ratio, which was the amount of specie your bank was supposed to hold in its vaults to redeem the paper notes you printed if anyone came asking. But it was pretty rare that anyone actually came asking for gold or silver to redeem for their paper notes, so you can imagine the temptation on bankers to print more notes than specie held on reserve. Sometimes, way more notes. This temptation pervaded all banks during the free banking era. I mean, without a regulatory body, who could stop a reckless banker from printing? Who could even check? The temptation was too great to resist for many banks, and the money these banks printed contributed greatly to the inflationary run-up to the Panic of 1857. Printing excess money is problematic because it leads to inflation as the money supply increases. Inflation is problematic for many reasons, one of which being that it causes a false confidence to form in asset prices. As asset prices rise due to inflation, it can be hard to parse apart whether or not that asset's price is rising due to some legitimate reason, or if that asset's price is rising only due to the loss of purchasing power in the dollars underlying that asset's value. In other words, inflation can masquerade as a booming asset market and frequently precipitates bubbles like the ones in 1857 and in 1837. But 1857 did 1837 one better. By the time the 1857 crisis rolled around, not only was inflation ramping up, but banks had also begun experimenting with the dubious practice known as call loans. The pattern of financial innovations preceding economic collapses will rear its ugly head time and time again throughout the history of U.S. economics. The pattern is that bankers contrive some new financial innovation that works great when times are good, but utterly backfires when times get bad. In 2011, for instance, the market crashed because a novel trading algorithm went haywire. In 2008, it was the backfiring of collateralized debt obligations. In 1987, it was portfolio insurance and leveraged buyouts, which were new innovations at that time. In the Great Depression, it was the innovation of call money. In 1907, it was corporate trust companies. And in 1857, it was call loans. Obviously, financial innovations can be a good thing. But it's hard to understand how those innovations will perform when the economy takes a nosedive. 
And there's no guarantee that the next nosedive will be anything like past nosedives. So it can be very hard to model how novel financial inventions will perform in those events. The next 170 or so years of economic history from the 1850s to the present day is replete with malfunctioning financial inventions, either causing or worsening economic crises. Call loans, like many of the financial inventions that we'll see over the next century and a half, were a practice born out of intense competition in the banking space, which itself was a result of the free banking era and all the new banks that were popping up. The era of free banking led to nearly 1,400 banks popping up across the country, which was a ton for a country of less than 24 million people at the time. To attract customers, competing banks began paying interest on deposits. To offset the cost of paying interest on those deposits, banks made short-term loans with the depositors' money and frequently led to stockbrokers. Furthermore, call loans had a stipulation that enabled the lender to demand repayment at any time. This method worked fine when times were good, when petulant depositors weren't smashing down the doors of the banks demanding their money back, but call loans spelt doom when depositors were doing just that. When depositors ran on the banks in 1857, for reasons we'll get into in a moment, the banks systematically failed to repay them because the depositors' money had been funneled into the stock market through call loans. To demand the call loans back meant that stockbrokers were forced to sell their positions for cash to give back to the banks. You can imagine the feedback loop of destruction that this caused. As confidence in the solvency of the banks began to falter, people ran on the banks demanding their money back. But as people ran on the banks, the banks forced the stockbrokers to sell their positions, which drove stock prices down. And as stock prices fell, people's confidence in the banks and the economy fell too, causing even more people to run on the banks. This vicious cycle was the condition that innovative New York bankers either didn't foresee or just didn't care about when they started making call loans. Particularly, call loans to the stockbrokers, the bankers didn't expect everybody to come demanding the money back all at once. Inflating the bubble of the day of 1857, the large amount of money the banks were printing, plus money from call loans, found its way largely into railroad stocks, which were booming because of all the new land that the nation had just acquired at the end of the 1840s. To connect all the new territory the U.S. had just taken from Mexico after the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, and from the British up in the Northwest, Railroad companies began popping up all across the country. It's worth noting here that another pattern is taking shape, one that we'll see again and again throughout the history of U.S. economics. But to understand it, you have to understand a little bit of financial theory first. When someone buys a stock or a bond or any kind of investment, what exactly are they buying? If you think of it in purely financial terms, they're buying access to future cash flows. If it's a stock or a bond, the investor is buying a piece of the cash flows generated by the business of the respective company. If you're a real estate investor and you're buying an apartment complex or something, you're buying ownership of future cash flows paid by the renters. You're using your money now to gain access to some greater amount of money coming to you in the future. That's all investing is. I think the idea is quite profound in its simplicity. In theory, if you adjust future cash flows back to present-day values and then sum those values up, that should be the price a rational investor would pay for an investment, be it a stock or an apartment complex or a share in a railroad company. 
Of course, outside of academia and in the real world, supply, demand, greed, and fear can push the price of an asset away from the rational price described by discounted cash flows. But in theory, all rational investing is, is putting your money on the line for ownership of some later and hopefully larger future cash flow. With that financial theory in mind, isn't it odd that investors often buy into companies that have no history of positive cash flows? Or even worse, investors are oftentimes willing to buy into companies that have negative cash flows, meaning the company is just losing money. It's hard to think about because if investing is merely the act of buying into an asset's cash flow, as they teach you in school anyway, it's hard to imagine a rational investor buying an asset that does nothing but lose money. But for some reason throughout economic history, that's happened over and over again. In 2001, for example, something happened called the dot-com bubble. The dot-com bubble happened because all these new internet companies were being invented that promised to make tons of money once the new internet tech industry took off. Investors drank the Kool-Aid. They began piling money into the internet companies, buying their stocks and pushing stock prices up. Investors confirmed their delusion that they had made a good investment by pointing out the shares of Pets.com or Webvan and gloating about how much those shares had gained in value. The only problem was that as businesses, Pets.com and Webvan were hemorrhaging cash. They weren't making any money at all. Actually, the companies were losing money every month. And it wasn't like it was a secret. Public companies, after all, have to disclose their financials every quarter, so investors knew that the dot-com companies were losing money hand over fist, but they still bought the shares. Isn't that strange? The entire dot-com bubble, where the Nasdaq rose almost 400%, was an example of investors buying into companies until the hype turned into fear. And then everybody wanted to sell. And fast. That's when the bubble pops. Or imagine Bitcoin, a contender for the title of king of all bubbles. Bitcoin, of course, has no cash flows. It doesn't give dividends. It doesn't have revenue coming in from business operations, which investors can buy a portion of. It's not a cash flow generating asset. How does one go about valuing something like Bitcoin? When there are no future cash flows to measure, how does one tell if the coin is over or underpriced? And what's a reasonable price to buy it for? The truth is... It can't be done. Nobody can figure that out. Investing in Bitcoin, and I say investing with air quotes, is truly just speculating in Bitcoin. It's the same as speculating in art, or Pokemon cards, or tulip bulbs. I'm telling you about this because this is exactly what happened in 1857 with the railroad stocks. To raise money, railroad companies were issuing stocks and bonds to investors around the world who were hungry to buy them even if the railroad wasn't cash flow positive, or in some cases, even if the railroad wasn't even built yet, meaning it couldn't possibly be generating cash flows at all. But just like the dot-com bubble in 2000 and the Bitcoin bubble in 2017, investors were telling themselves, no, railroads are a good investment because someday they'll be profitable, or at least I'll be able to sell my shares to a bigger fool. In layman's terms, this is called hype, and it can be a pretty good indicator of a bubble. People get excited about investing in businesses, even though the business has a track record of losing money every quarter. Investors still think it's a good investment because hopefully in the future, the railroad company or the internet company will be profitable. Unfortunately, U.S. economic history is filled with examples of companies collapsing. 
even if everyone thought that the companies were eventually going to be profitable. But in fairness, you do have to consider the exceptions to the rule. Amazon, for instance, lost money for years before it became profitable. Tesla has the same story. In fact, a lot of companies lose money right out of the gate, so some speculation on the part of investors can be justified with some historic home runs. Regardless, buying into a company out of hope that it will stop burning cash someday isn't investing, it's just gambling. And gambling like this was what fueled the railroad bubble in the 1850s. Adding fuel to the fire, when speculation was pushing railroad stock prices up, many of the unregulated free banks became inclined to get involved in the investments as well, usually by making loans to investors or to companies who speculate in railroad prices. This is where call loans come in. By the way, it's when the banks start getting heavily involved in an asset bubble that that bubble goes from being a sector-specific risk to being a structural threat to the economy. If railroads collapse and only people who bought their stocks are affected, well, that's too bad for them, but the damage is somewhat contained and isolated. But if railroad stocks collapse and they cause the trusts and the banks to collapse too, well, now we have a bank run and a credit contraction, and the money supply shrinks and a recession can easily follow. In 1857, that's exactly what happened. The railroad stock bubble consumed a large portion of global wealth. By some estimates, the amount of European investment in American railroads alone was an equivalent amount to the sum of all U.S. trade with Europe for those same years. The stock bubble was finally pricked when in August of 1857, Ohio Life Insurance and Trust Company declared bankruptcy after it became known that high levels of fraudulent lending and embezzlement were taking place at the company. The company had been issuing oversized loans with deferred interest payment options based off of inflated property values. Sounds a little bit like a recent financial crisis, doesn't it? Anyway, the Ohio Life Insurance and Trust Company was the largest financial institution in Ohio. When the company suddenly vanished to the plains of bankruptcy, the vacuum it left rattled the entire financial system. Not surprisingly, people's confidence in the banking system took a blow, and not long after the company's bankruptcy, a run began on other U.S. banks, especially those up in New England, which depositors feared might have had exposure to Ohio Life Insurance and Trust Company. Now, the bank runs stressed the New England banking system, but that stress grew from a steady hum to a thundering roar upon news that a ship named the SS Central America had sunk in a hurricane off the coast of Florida. The SS Central America was carrying about $1.5 million of gold that New England banks desperately needed to quench the specie demand of angry depositors. $1.5 million is about $50 million in 2018 dollars, by the way. Though $50 million might not seem like an amount that could structurally threaten the banking system today, keep in mind that banking was a much smaller industry in the 1850s, and the bank run currently underway made depositors especially skittish and already nervous. After hearing the news that the ship had sunk on September 12th of 1857, almost 30,000 New Yorkers converged on the city's banks on a single day to demand their money. Desperate banks were forced to suspend specie payments if they wanted to keep their doors open. So that's what they did. For about two months, New England banks simply stopped giving back gold and silver in exchange for paper notes, grossly violating private property rights and consumer trusts. In that time, the banks hustled to collect as much gold and silver as possible from other sources. Importantly, and we'll get to the implications of this in a moment, 
the New England banks called on their loans for repayment in gold and silver, of course, from smaller banks, many of which were in the American South. Gradually, the New York banks, as well as those in Pennsylvania, scraped together enough specie to resume repayment of gold and silver to depositors. By that time, the fear had somewhat subsided, and the bank run had ceased. Unlike the SS Central America, the New England banking system appeared to weather the storm of 1857. However, lest we think that the Panic of 1857 was an affair confined to New England, the brief panic set in motion events that would ultimately tear the United States apart. There's an interesting lesson in this that I think can be applied to several other periods of financial crises. It's summed up in a quote from a New York businessman named George Strong. He said regarding the Panic of 1857, quote, The remedy for this crisis must be psychological rather than financial. It's an epidemic of fear and distrust that everyone admits to be without real ground, except for the very sufficient ground that everyone else is known to share them, unquote. If I translate that a bit, he's basically saying, the panic is not actually because the financial system is really all that bad. The panic is happening because people have whipped themselves up into a fear frenzy, and the very existence of a fear frenzy is a self-fulfilling prophecy. People get afraid of the banks collapsing, and that causes a run. But a run itself can cause a bank to collapse, which makes people more afraid of the banks collapsing, of course. It's a feedback loop, and the panic won't stop until that loop is broken. I think as a commentary on the financial system, George Strong's quote is of timeless relevance. Anyway, the banks of New York broke the feedback loop of fear by freezing specie redemption until the fear had somewhat subsided. Even though the bank run was relatively brief, the effects it had on the economy were long-lasting. Remember that in the days of free banking, where private banks were issuing currency, if a bank goes bankrupt, as many of them did, all of that currency that that bank had issued becomes worthless. If that happens, the entire commerce of a community could suddenly freeze, crushing businesses, causing unemployment, foreclosures, homelessness, crime, and poverty. This is why the brief panic of 1857 had enormous implications for the country. All of these things that I just listed, homelessness, foreclosures, and so on, crushed communities in the South as the New England banks called on their loans to be paid back in gold and silver. This is one of the final straws between North and South. Already, slavery had become a deeply polarizing issue. But if that wasn't enough, the Panic of 1857 demonstrated how Northern and Southern economic interests were so opposed to each other. As railroad companies began to collapse, banks who had bought railroad bonds or made call loans to brokers who had bought railroad stock began to collapse as well. From the perspective of a southern farmer, your take on the Panic of 1857 might look something like this. A bunch of greedy northerners gambled on a foolish investment. The fat cat bankers got involved and then lost it all. Now that they're all about to collapse, those bankers have sent henchmen down to my community to take all of the gold and silver back up north. It was their problem betting on the railroads, which, by the way, were only ever really built in the north, and now they want to steal the wealth out of my community to pay for their mistakes? I don't think so. Add to Southerners' righteous anger at the financial power northern banks held over southern communities the fact that the South's biggest buyer of cotton was England. But the South didn't have the needed ports to trade directly with England, and so had to send their crops through northern port cities. The North, then, who didn't grow the crop, got to take a piece of the southern farmer's profits as a middleman. For that reason alone, a lot of Southerners wanted to cut their economic ties with the North and figure out how to just trade with England directly, 
perhaps through the major port of New Orleans. And oh yeah, the pasty white mechanics up in the north also wanted to take the southern farmers' workforce and enormous investments in human capital, read slaves, which would basically shut down southern farms and derail the southern lifestyle, not to mention their pride. The tensions between north and south were palpable by the end of the 1850s. The slavery issue aside, the economic inequality and power the northern bankers had over the lives of southerners as the Panic of 1857 revealed was enough to provoke the South to just abandon the North in 1860. The outcome of the Panic of 1857 was that Northern bankers were blamed for the unemployment and falling prices taking place in the South. The farmers of the South and the Midwest felt like they had acted in good faith, just planting and tending their crops. It was the greedy New Yorkers who speculated the price of stocks and commodities up into the stratosphere, only to allow them to plummet once the panic started. Indeed, as lending tightened and the money supply contracted following the Panic of 1857, the prices of flour, wheat, and cotton all fell between 20 and 30 percent. It was easy, and probably not entirely wrong, to blame New York bankers for this hardship. So strong was anti-New York sentiment that a Philadelphia newspaper reported, quote, Everyone knows that every particle of distress in the country is owing to New York and that we are suffering wholly from the state of affairs in New York." Unquote. With sentiments like this fomenting in Southern minds, the stage was set for the ensuing Civil War. Taking a step back from the panic, it's worth mentioning here how economies exist on a spectrum. On one side you have the laissez-faire stance of the Jacksonian Democrats, and on the other you have the command economies of communism. In the middle, we have various degrees of socialism, ranging from 0% on the pure capitalist side to 100% on the pure communist side. America has always existed on the side of the spectrum that's closer to capitalism, though at times the U.S. government has been very interventionalist, and at other times it's been very hands-off. The period from the 1830s to the 1860s is an era where America almost maxed out on the capitalism side of that spectrum. State and federal intervention in the economy was at the lowest it's ever been in American history. Along this vein, when the Panic of 1857 came about, President James Buchanan famously said, quote, The government sympathized, but could do nothing to alleviate the suffering of individuals, unquote. I like to contrast this period to the modern day, where Keynesian economics prevails. We'll get to it, but Keynesian economists argue that the government should stimulate the economy when things slow down, and restrain the economy when things heat up, so that growth is a little more constant and less volatile. When you consider the unfettered capitalism of the mid-1800s, and the roller coaster of economic growth and contractions that it entailed, Keynes' ideas start to make a bit of sense. But in 1857, the federal government was hands-off when it came to the economy. President Buchanan famously announced that in response to the panic, the government would pursue, quote, reform, not relief, to the financial system, a very different approach than what the U.S. government pursues now. Another ingredient I want to throw into the stew of economic tensions bubbling up in the 1850s is that of tariffs. Consider for a minute the industries of the North and the South. The North was full of industrialists, while the South was full of agriculturalists. In terms of international competition, the North had to contend against England and much of Europe, which had become thoroughly industrialized by the 1850s. But the South basically had a global monopoly on cotton production, which was their cash crop at this time. Basically, there wasn't a lot of global competition in the cotton market, so there really weren't tariffs that could benefit southern farmers. 
But the North was inclined to desire protectionist tariffs because they didn't want to have to compete with European manufactured goods imported into the United States. So now, on top of exploitive pressure from northern banks and the slavery issue, national trade policy began driving a wedge between northern and southern interests as well. As we discussed in episode 5, the North wanted high tariffs to protect their industrial factories from English and European competition. But the South didn't want tariffs because A, the cotton industry didn't really need protection, they basically already had a global monopoly. B, a trade war could be devastating for the South, considering England was the largest customer. And C, any tariffs on imported textiles reduced domestic demand for foreign textiles, which in turn reduced England's demand for Southern cotton. Despite the South's concerns regarding tariffs, Representative Justin Morrill pushed what came to be known as the Morrill Tariffs through the House in 1860, which put tariffs in place as high as 48%. That's huge! But Southern delegates didn't wait for a vote in the Senate to try to stop Justin Morrill and his tariffs. Before the Senate vote on the reviled Morrill tariffs, seven Southern states had already seceded from the Union, giving Republicans a majority in the Senate. In February 1861, the Morrill tariffs passed the Senate with a vote of 25 in favor, 14 against. Then, on March 2, 1861, and as one of his final and most divisive acts in office, President James Buchanan signed the tariffs into law. Combining all these factors, that is, the destruction northern banks cast upon southern communities when the northern banks suddenly called their loans, with trade tensions related to the idea that northerners were parasitically stealing profits by playing the middleman between southern farmers and England, and lastly with Justin Morrill's ultra-protectionist tariffs, we can see the economic environment which put northern and southern interests so at odds. And we haven't even touched on slavery. Once we bring slavery into the equation, the economic differences became magnified by massive political division, which proved enough for the fragile United States to be finally torn asunder. Thanks for listening to this episode of the History of U.S. Economics podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and check out the website, useconpodcast.com. Also, follow the show on Twitter, at useconpodcast.